Are self-help books really all that helpful? What is the best way to manage your time? Can positive thinking really make us happier? This week, writer and self-help skeptic Oliver Berkman on Nine Questions with Eric Oliver. Hi, Dre. So tell me, have you ever read a self-help book? No. (laughs) Oh, no, wait. I lied. Uh, Something about habit. Oh, Atomic Habits? No, not Atomic Habits. It's something else about habits. Oh, really? The Habits of Seven Habits of Highly Successful People? Habits between for you and me? <laughs> <laughs> the Power of Habit. The Power of Habit. Okay. And it was did... so good. And I don't remember any of it. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Basically, it just talks to you about habit loop and how if you fix your habit loops within your life, you can become a better better person, more motivated, you know, finish tasks yeah. in timely, you know, manner. And did, were you able to change any of your habits? Absolutely not. Yeah. So how do you feel you manage your time? I don't really worry about managing my time. I'm worried about managing all the stuff I have to do and keep <laughs> up with, honestly. Uh, but, you know, time management is one of those things that people are really obsessed with. So anyway, why don't you tell everybody about Oliver Berkman? Oliver Berkman is a British author and journalist. For a long time, he wrote a column in the Guardian newspaper called This Column Will Change Your Life. He has written three books where he examines different philosophies of self-help. Most recently, he published 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, a best-selling book on the philosophy and psychology of optimizing how you spend your time and happiness. I came across Oliver's book because I was, when I was shopping my book that I'm writing right now uh, to some agents and one agent was like, oh you should write a book like Oliver's book. And I was like, well, what is this Oliver's book? And I, I picked up his book and, and I was like, oh God, you know, he's such a good writer and he's so mm-hmm. funny and he's so human. And I was like, he writes all of these books that are sort of like anti self-help books. Like he'll mm-hmm. take, he, he's genuine and sincere and wanting to like improve himself, but then he engages with the material and. I feel like know, he's more realistic. He's just uh, yeah. how, he has a healthy dose of skepticism about how much yeah, people can right. actually accomplish in a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's great. And um, so I thought, oh, wow. Okay. Here, here's somebody, you know, since in some ways this podcast is self-helpy, mm-hmm. like here's someone who's really delved into self-help, but it's not like, you know, peddling a scheme. So, uh, and he's a really delightful, funny guy. Oliver, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to meet you. I've loved your books and I'm just really excited to be able to talk to you about a lot of the ideas within them. Um, so let's start with our first question, which is you've written what I would describe as two kind of anti-self-help books. So let me just ask you, what is the self that you're not trying to help? <laughs> this is this is a this is a brilliant question. I love it. But uh, and thank you, by the way, for inviting me uh, on to discuss these things. Um, it's a brilliant question, but I'm not sure I have a, a, a very straight answer to it. There are too many negatives and contradictions. Um, <laughs> I think I'm very uh, the, the the notion that there's something to be questioned about the self, as well as the idea that there's something to be questioned about self-help culture. I mean, both of these ideas resonate deeply with me. So the former, obviously, with lots of roots in Buddhist and other Eastern philosophies. And the other, the sort of anti-self-help stance, I guess, being something a little British, maybe something kind of rational and skeptical. These are two sort of different currents that 
mean a lot to me. Here's what I think is useful to say in response to this question. There's definitely something in what I'm trying to get at in pretty much all my writing, I think, that has to do with leaving something alone or letting something happen, standing back, not trying to manipulate the self in a very sort of specific and willed way, as if we had this very simple model that there's a self and you can somehow do stuff to it and make your life better that way. So I wrote this book, The Antidote, about the trouble with positive thinking. And that for me is the essence of the kind of cliched positive thinking stance, right? It's like you have your thoughts and emotions and you can just decide with an effort of will and enough mental discipline that they're all going to go in a positive direction. And as a result, you're going to meet with unbroken success. So there's a very sort of directed and straightforward idea there. It's not very straightforward when you start thinking about it, because obviously the self that is being manipulated is also the self that's doing the manipulating, and it quickly gets uh, sort of strange and confusing and recursive, but it feels like it ought to be a simple way forward. And I think that uh, what I was trying to say there was that, in fact, you can't expect to exert that degree of control over your mental life, over your thoughts and your emotions, and that a more fulfilling life comes from allowing the full range of them to arise. Uh, and then, you know, something similar in the work on time and time management, that there's a kind of attempt to control how life unfolds that is really self-defeating and not as simple and uh, straightforward a path to fulfillment as it might appear. So the reason that I think this is an answer to your question, I feel like I ought to clarify, is because I, I don't think it's about being against self-help necessarily. And I also don't think that I live in a state of sort of permanent um, understanding that the self is unreal, right? It's not, it's not that I'm coming at this from a state of perfect Zen enlightenment or something. It's, it, it's just that that notion that we have a self and that we can do stuff to it and that's going to lead to good results. Like that has to be made more complicated. And I think usually for me that comes with learning to loosen up, learning to control things less, learning to let things be as they are a bit more. I was uh talking to a, a um this guy Richard Lang, who I don't know if you've ever come across. He's British. Yeah, the headless way, right? Yeah, the headless way. It's funny. I was Brilliant. I was talking to him earlier this week and it's what what struck me about what you were saying was very similar to what he was saying, which is he was kind of, I think, distilling down, you know, a, a lot of esoteric kind of, you know, Buddhist or neo-Buddhist wisdom into very, a very, very much more simple, straightforward way of being. And it was just like, just relax. <laughs> right. You know, right. you know, it was, it was like, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to be so effortful um in in trying to apprehend everything and manipulate everything um yeah no absolutely and and that made me think of another sort of clarifying someone else's work that i found really clarifying here to help this which is um i found the work of a, of a zen writer called john tarrant uh, i don't know if you've come across his writing to be really helpful here he makes this point that uh often the burst of enthusiasm or the sense of new direction that you feel when you adopt a new life philosophy or a new habit or a new um, system of productivity or anything like that. Often, actually, the, the sense of freedom and lightness and enthusiasm comes from 
letting go of the old one, not from not from embracing the new one. So it's that moment when you sort of say, okay, all this effortful trying that hasn't worked for me, I'm uh-huh. going to put that down and I'm going to do this thing that I just read about in a book instead. But actually the the real freedom is in that gap, right? It's, yeah. it's not it's not in the, the picking up of the new thing. It's the putting yeah. down of the sort of heavy uh, weight of that conceptual attempt to sort of stick a framework over your life and then make your life conform to it. It's like, okay, let's let that go for a moment. And in that moment, there is something really, really lovely. And then there's this sort of guiding idea that I come back to again and again and again. I've said this so many times, but I'm going to say it again. It comes from a British-born Zen teacher called Jiu Kennett, who um, said that her method of her approach to teaching her students was not to lighten the burden of the student, but to make it so heavy that he or she would put it down. And uh-huh. I think this is just like, this makes my, I get goosebumps every time I uh, think about or repeat this this, this phrase, because for me, that is so close to the essence of something something very important that in all sorts of ways, the problems that we have and the ways that we suffer as a result of them come from sort of not appreciating that the situation is even worse than we think right there's something about <laughs> the human there's something about the human condition whereby we're always trying to say like oh my goodness trying to get through this to-do list trying to feel certain about the future trying to make my relationship trouble free like this is really hard and actually it's not really hard it's impossible and in that switch from really hard to impossible there's a sort of total kind of change of mood from life as a kind of grinding problem to be solved through to just life as something to be particip- to participate in and to be experienced and it has problems and it has many wonderful moments uh you're never going to get through the to-do list completely you're never going to be certain about the future you're never going to have no problems at all in relationships and there's such a kind of deep uh freedom in in that uh understanding i think and not a kind of nihilistic one right not kind of like oh, life sucks so now we've resigned ourselves to it we're just going to be sort of um make jokes about how how rubbish it is but actually a really empowering freedom a freedom that comes from seeing like okay i don't need to invest my time and attention in trying to do something futile trying to solve impossible problems i can actually focus on like being here and creating interesting work hopefully and nurturing a few important relationships and and like you know really be alive well within all of your explorations uh which you you've written about in your books and they're they're hilarious and they're great um i'm curious if you've gotten any any profound insights into the nature of your own essence uh or what you are and if you understand that essence differently now than you say say like 15 years ago that does seem to be a, a a question that takes us to the sort of the real question of what is the self and i think like many people probably i am exist in a torn state between feeling that the what i think of as the buddhist notion of the self as as fundamentally some form of illusion or or sort of artifact of thinking feels to me like like it's right, like that makes sense, like that accords with my own experience. That famous quote from David Hume, the philosopher, about looking inside himself and finding no self, just a tangle of 
processes essentially and then on the other hand you know this not being how i am relating to the world most of the time uh feeling very much like i am a self that uh, needs things to go a certain way and gets exasperated when they don't or feels good about myself or bad about myself and and all the rest of it so whether i've achieved a greater insight into that i don't know i think what has happened is that i am more able to sort of exist and participate in life in a more kind of with a sort of greater acceptance of that strange mystery i suppose it's without without needing to know either that i can make everything go my way or that i can somehow see through selfhood and just uh, these kinds of uh, attempts to express this just sort of run into the sand very quickly because sure, I don't even sure. know what it is we're talking about in a, in one sense, but it's uh, in another sense we're talking about you know absolutely the the essence. Well, it's, of, it sounds of, like you're a lot of what it is is there's just profound uncertainty at the root of everything, and it's about learning to have comfort with that uncertainty, which is a very Buddhist kind of idea. So let's move on to question two. What exactly is time and what does it actually mean to manage time? And I, I was I was thinking about kind of in some ways the absurdity of this idea of in the in the very notion of time management. Um yeah. and I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Oh, I have thoughts. Um <laughs> I think I'm not going to give you a neatly packaged answer to the question, what is time? Because uh I don't know. And my only um sort of consolation there is that I don't think anyone else really knows either. Um, as for managing it, I mean, one of the things that I did when I finally figured out the right structure for 4,000 Weeks, my book about time and time management, was I divide that into two parts, right? And I'm not sure whether this particular, the nature of the division is clear to readers. But for me, the first half of the book is sort of about coping with the fact that we only have a limited quantity of time to manage, time to use, and what the ramifications are of that. And then the second half sort of completely undermines the first half and questions whether we really have time and have whether controlling time in any way uh, makes sense as an idea. So there's this duality that just has to run in parallel the whole way, right? I get up in the morning and have some thoughts about how I want to use my time that day and what would be a good use of the time and what wouldn't. On the other hand, I think that seeing through this notion that we can use time and manage it and control it, that we even have it at all, is is something really essential to understanding like what it is we're we're doing here. So on a practical level, you know, I'm not sort of against the idea of trying to figure out how long you think a project's going to take you and then when you're going to get those hours in your schedule. That's just something that we that we have to do. But there is something fundamentally flawed with that notion that time is this resource that we get given and then figure out how to apportion. You know, you don't ever get given time. You just get one moment after the next. You can't set it aside. Uh, we're all just in it. We just find ourselves in this moment and then in the next moment. So there's clearly something strange about that desire to exert control and management over time. I think the closest that I've got to an answer came when I was researching the book. It came from grappling stressfully with the work of Heidegger and trying to understand what he meant by the idea that uh, being and time are synonymous, that we are time in some sense. 
And then not very long after the book came out, I discovered a lot of these ideas expressed to me much more clearly or resonantly anyway in the work of the Buddhist scholar Dogen, uh, with the extra benefit that Dogen wasn't a Nazi and Heidegger was. <laughs> always find a way to sort of reconcile yourself to that fact if you're going to draw on his yeah. work. But this notion that we are time, that time isn't something that we have, but something that we are, and that we are an unfolding moment of time. I'm not sure it's ever going to be completely pinnable down in words, but it really, really makes sense to me. And of course, if it makes sense to, to you as well, then, then the notion of time management, at least as it's popularly understood, is exposed as this sort of crazy contradiction where you're going to step outside of the thing that you are what does that even mean? And yeah. then kind of exert control over it, be the puppet master, the air traffic controller, whatever metaphor works to try to make it go in certain ways. And that clearly doesn't make any sense. And so I think what I'm trying to do in certainly in parts of the book is to sort of trace how it came to be that we have this kind of strange alienated notion that there's like, there's me and then there's my time. And these are separate things and I can have a relationship with the time. Maybe it's a peaceful one. Maybe it's an adversarial one. I can waste this resource or use it well. There's something at the very bottom of all of that that doesn't reflect the reality of day-to-day experience of just being in this unfolding moment. And I think that dissonance, I think that's what accounts for lots of our problems with time, right? Ultimately, we're treating it as something that it that it isn't. Um, well, that, that kind of maybe leads me to this next question, which I think it ties mm. into, which is, I kind of wrote this as question three, which is what is really going on with our preoccupation with efficiency and productivity and control? I think all roads ultimately lead back to uh, the fear of death. I think if I'm trying to sort of answer this question in a in a way that is universal, then eventually it's going to get back there. That there is a feeling or an awareness that we have on some level, usually presumably pretty subliminal, that we're not in control of time, that time will always win any (laughs) struggle that we wish to engage in with it. And that to be alive as a finite human is to be sort of completely just thrown into this river of time, totally vulnerable to anything that might happen, guaranteed not getting out of it alive. And so there's a very natural tendency to kind of try to psychologically, as it were, manipulate yourself into a position of superiority, of control over time. Efficiency specifically is, you know, about packing more and more things into the same portion of time. And I think that often serves as a kind of a a proxy for making time go on forever, right? In a way, like maybe you accept that you can't live forever, but then what you're going to do instead is do everything in the time that you have, which amounts to the same thing in kind of a mathematical sense. In terms of my experience, it would be, and I think this is pretty widespread, but possibly not universal, there's also a strong kind of element of self-worth that comes into it from, I don't know, people's childhood experiences. Some notion that, you know, in order to feel good about myself, in order to feel like I'm doing enough. So it's this sense of not wanting to die, but it's also this sense of wanting to sort of feel worthy, which I think has a lot of cultural influences as well. If this is all you've got, we've we've got to kind of pack it with as many great experiences and impressive accomplishments as we possibly can in order to feel that we really sort of sucked the marrow out of life, that we really made the most of it. But you don't need to think for very long to find that sort of 
collapse logically as well because why do you need to make the most of it i mean yeah. it, it's it's good i mean it's obviously good to have good conscious experience rather than bad conscious experience while you're alive but why that needs to mean uh this kind of effortful quest for more and more experiences and more and more accomplishments doesn't seem to doesn't seem to follow at all in fact it is like to have a negative effect if you're sort of stressfully telling yourself every day you've got to seize the day otherwise it'll be a terrible waste and you'll die filled with regrets i guess the other way into that same question is to point out that part of my understanding of what it means to be a finite human and to be therefore turning down effectively infinite possibilities for life at every single moment because you're to take any path you have to close off all the others is that in some sense regret is inevitable or perhaps the potential for regret it might be a personality based thing whether you actually feel the regret but on any given day at the moment i would like to spend more time deeply focused on my writing more time with my family more time on my own walking in the mountains here than is going to be possible because it all adds up to more than 24 hours so yeah, yeah. so so that sort of loss is is baked in it's it's baked into the idea of making any kind of decision about what to do with your life so if regret means thinking you made bad decisions then maybe there's room for minimizing regret if regret just means that things of real value weren't done weren't experienced then i would say that's that's inescapable well i think that segues nicely into this next question which was you know we always are told to live in the moment so what does that mean in the real life of kids work and daily responsibility and so on yeah it's a it's a it's an endlessly fascinating question to me i mean i think the con the sort of provisional conclusion i i come to is that we have to start from the strangeness of that idea right i mean the notion that it might be possible to succeed or fail at living in the moment gets stranger the more you the more you think about it because clearly you know in some sense we're always in this moment by definition and if i'm fretting about the future or regretting the past i'm still doing that in the present moment and i also don't think that it means getting rid of all those thoughts and never thinking about the future never mentally time traveling that doesn't seem that seems like a kind of um uh, denial of what it means to be a human with those capacities for time travel, for mental time travel. So it's something like increased consciousness of what you're doing and thinking in the moment, I suppose. It's a question of definitely, you know, being more alive to the real sensory experiences of any given moment. But it's also about planning for the future with some level of understanding that what you are doing is a present moment exercise in cognition do you know like what it is that propelled you into the relationship that you were having with time versus now really going back as long as i can remember i think i'm sort of a generally somewhat anxious anxiety prone person i have the sense that i had the sense that i sort of i'm not saying i was always conscious of this but that i had to sort of um really exert a lot of effort to keep track of time and to control time in order to get done all the things that I sort of needed to do in order for some nebulous 
very bad thing not to happen. Um, I think that, you know, you can sort of go off in a million different directions as to where that comes from. But I think, and I, I only refrain from doing that because I think it'll bore people, not because I'm I'm happy to talk about all sorts of different uh, family tell influences. Us, tell but... us about your mother here. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, but I do think that, you know, it was my vehicle for trying to feel that I was, yeah, on top of things, doing enough, fulfilling my obligations and sort of stopping some nebulous catastrophe from from happening. I think that's the sort of that's a family style that I inherit, right? It's like it's sort of turning things up to 11 all the time and um thinking that it would be really really bad if something happened where actually it would just be mildly bad, right? If you uh-huh. missed a train or you, you know, even missed a deadline, right? Early on in a journalistic career, you don't want to miss deadlines, but equally it's not actually uh the end of the world. So having that sort of quite absolutist black and white mindset, I think naturally gave on to feeling a a great need to exert a lot of control over time. And I, you know, I'm a work in progress. I still struggle with this, but but one of the things I write about in the book was this moment, uh, a sort of intellectual epiphany on a on a park bench in Brooklyn, where we were living at the time, of just understanding that it, well, I was in the middle of a very, very busy week. I was trying to figure out what combination of cunning time management systems I could use to try to force my way through all the things I felt I had to do by the end of that week. And just really being struck very deeply by the thought like, oh, oh, it's impossible. Oh, what I'm trying to do here can't be done. That's why I can't find the sequence of the combination of techniques or the reserves of self-discipline that I need in order to do it. It's because it's not something that I could do. There's just too many things that I'm telling myself I have to do. And anyone who knows anything about philosophy will know that it's it's a complicated notion and probably an incoherent notion to say that you have to do more than you can do. It doesn't really, it violates that whole idea that um, ought implies can. If you can't get through the number of tasks this week that you felt you had to, then it can't be the case that you had to because you just can't. It's not, it's not within your gift. And I found something very, very, very liberating and relaxing about that realization that it might be the standard I was holding myself to that was the cause of the, uh, the cause of the torment. Yeah. Well, I think that segues to the next question I want to ask, which is what is your purpose in life? Yeah, I, I, I find this and always have found this word specific word, very disconcerting somehow. It doesn't quite land for me in some way. And it clearly does for very many, very many people. Certainly on a on a sort of slightly lower level, perhaps I can, you know, I can certainly come up with some things that I think it's important for me to do while I'm on the planet. This has to do with uh, connecting with other human beings, trying to understand and express the situation we're in using language. I think writing for me feels close to something to do with purpose. I, I I sort of need to do it more than just want to do it or can do it. But something in that seems a little bit too concrete and specific to be the right answer, right? It doesn't it seems odd that like writing things could be somebody's purpose in life. It seems that something important is is missed there. Um is, is but it, then when is I really it writing sorry, or is I'm sorry, is it writing or is it being read? So 
as someone who's reading a book right now, I always wonder like, okay, I'm reading this book and then nobody reads it. Does it matter? <laughs> I mean, listen, it is ultimately it is the forging of connections with other human beings, which requires being read. Uh, I actually do do a fair bit of writing that doesn't get read. You know, I do do a fair bit of sort of journaling, but it does all count to that kind of the the connections that are made through writing. I mean, I'm not a I'm not immune to the much more sort of, you know, the sort of ego gratification of being read or having a profile or, you know, selling copies or something like that. I'm not trying to say that doesn't affect me at all, but in terms of something that would be worthy of being talked about as a purpose and that I find sort of really deeply fulfilling about it, that would be worth doing even if there wasn't a job, there was no money in it. I couldn't, you know, if I would I would find time for that. I think if I possibly could in in almost any version of my of my life so maybe that is a a purpose. And then if I think too hard about this topic I then come up with answers that I think are probably true and more deeply true but they kind of apply to absolutely everyone so I think the sense of having showed up for life as fully as possible the sense of having felt aliveness that 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 would be uh, in as me- for as much of my life as possible that that would that would count as the only sort of real definition of a life well well lived for me to have sort of been as fully present for all of it as possible. But then you're in a realm far from being too concrete, like writing. You're in a realm that is feels far too abstract to um, be much use. So maybe I'm just evading your question, but um, I always struggle with this idea of purpose. Well, I think that that goes great to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is where do we go wrong when we look for happiness? Probably just in the sheer notion of looking for happiness, right? I mean, this was this was the governing idea of uh, the book, The Antidote, that I wrote a bunch of years ago now. And although I don't necessarily agree with every single page in that book, I think this this thought has stayed the course with me. Happiness is this very strange quality, as you well know. But anyway, firstly, in as much as it's it's really hard to define what it is. And then secondly, even if you do come up with a kind of a provisional definition of it, it seems to be something that can't be achieved or at least reliably achieved by by directly seeking it, right? It's the kind of thing that seems to you catch out of the corner of your eye or that arises when you weren't expecting it. And the more that you sort of sort of will it into existence, the harder that that, that gets to actually to actually happen. So I think the whole notion of happiness as a goal in life is probably flawed. Of course, you know, then people redefine it as something else and it makes sense to pursue it. But I think the way that people normally think about it as a sort of a as a state of mind, it's not it's not a useful thing to be pursuing because we all have these experiences, right, of of feeling like we're doing something very meaningful. We're engaged in some project or relationship or undertaking that really is what we ought to be doing with our time on the planet, and yet doesn't seem to have much happiness in it, or has a lot of times that aren't happy. And, you know, I think relationships are often like that. Parenting can be often like that for certain phases. Writing a book, God knows. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, it's a bad measure for things because we have this really immediate experience of like, no, this matters to me, not just to prove a point, but in a really the deepest sense of whatever mattering is, this matters to me. And yet, you know, half the time I'm I'm not enjoying it. That's one of the reasons I love, I mentioned this in the book and I've mentioned it a lot, but I really love this question that the Jungian psychotherapist James Hollis proposes, which is to ask whether a 
life direction or a life path is enlarge whether it enlarges or diminishes us rather than whether it makes us happy or not based on the notion that for a lot of people anyway that sense of growth or enlargement that resonates in the in a specific way it enables you to distinguish between you know two kinds of negative experience the the kind of negative experiences that you come across in a job say or a relationship that are not fun but feel like you're you're in the essence of things you're doing the thing that matters you're changing and growing and becoming more of a, a more capacious human and then the other kind which you know do happen where they're the kind of negative experiences in a job that should be taken as a signal to get out of that job as soon as you can or or to get out of a toxic relationship and so happiness is no good in that context because neither of those sets of experiences feel particularly happy but one of them feels meaningful and one of them doesn't and i think that notion of enlargement has always been i've always found that a really good way of connecting to my intuitions about that yeah i think you know one of the things that i've realized in in, in thinking about this is that we conflate happiness with pleasure a lot and we think that oh happiness means being in a state of pleasure and if you look at the neurocircuitry of pleasure pleasure yeah you know, dopamine is a reward hormone it's basically we evolved to feel pleasure because we did something right you know we found a banana that we weren't expecting or something like that and so okay there are bananas here that's great <laughs> don't go in here and so i think we extrapolate from that in the same way that like oh just as we get rewards if we do the right things happiness is somehow another something that we earn so right. if only i do x y and z yeah then i will achieve happiness and it's like this state as opposed to happiness as being something that's experienced and often I, I liked your idea of, of, of the corner of your eye. And I was thinking about your son coming in, you know, that's like, there's just little spontaneous moments that kind of flash in that we don't really earn or control, but that we have to actually be open to. And that's actually what a, a good life is, is being open to those spontaneous moments that we, we don't necessarily earn, but that present themselves and make themselves available to us. Since life is not all roses and sunshine. <laughs> What have you learned about sort of the best way to deal with life's inevitable uncertainties and disturbances and pain? This is a sort of question that that really just in my mind turns my turns my attention on all the on all the distance I have yet to cover in this kind of human challenge, but I think one thing that is very clear to me is that it's very easy to make a problem out of having problems. This is a kind of a way of talking about something that gets talked about a lot in Buddhist psychology is the difference between pain and suffering uh, crops up in all sorts of other traditions of thought as well. But just this notion that pain and uncertainty and discomfort, these things are all to some extent unavoidable inevitabilities. But the thing where you make them a lot worse by demanding that there shouldn't be any in your life and fighting against them as problems in themselves, that part is optional. And you can learn to make less of a meal of of things as uh, I think it might be a British idiom. <laughs> Right, baffle, <laughs> baffle American listeners. But anyway, yeah. um, so you know, there's a quote from the American Zen teacher Jocko Beck that I use at the beginning of my most recent book, which is, "What makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured." And I really, really love this kind of idea, this notion that the human condition is not going to be free of negative things, but you're going to make it all a lot worse by 
thinking that it's on you to somehow create this situation where none of that is happening. You're either going to feel bad and like a loser because you haven't got there yet, or you're going to feel enraged and resentful because the world hasn't created this trouble-free situation for you yet. I go back quite often to this story I heard uh, Sam Harris tell in one of his talks once about how he was kind of moaning on to some friend about all the problems he was facing in his work at that time or something. And the way he told it, as I recall, she just sort of interrupted him and said, hold on, are you still under the illusion that like one day you're going to get to the phase of your life where you don't have problems? Yeah. And just sort of thinking about the the wonderful kind of, again, liberation of that, of thinking, oh, right, the solving, addressing myself to problems is going to be what I do for the, for the entirety of my life. And definitely there are sort of absolutely terrible problems that I have been spared and I hope always to be spared and that people do not deserve to be burdened with it's not that it's not that you can easily cope with any problem but that like on some level some kind of problems they are just like the substance of what we do in our lives it, we might not want a life that was completely problem free that could be its own kind of problem and so i think but i think that is the the crucial the crucial thing that i have learned is to see the ways in which you greatly exacerbate negative experience by kind of demanding that what is happening shouldn't be happening. I'm just curious. So what are you working on now? That is what I'm doing in my writing. I'm figuring out what I'm what I'm still struggling with and trying to find uh find ways forward on it. One of the things I'm working on with a view to it being a book at the moment is this broad question of action, of doing things, of what it means to go from knowing how one ought to be living or what is true about time and suffering and problems and all the rest of it to actually sort of embodying that in one's life and why it seems to be so hard for so many of us to actually do the things, not not just that we sh think we should do ethically speaking, but that we know would make us feel the best. So it's it's not a particularly high-minded inquiry. It's more just like, what what is the nature of that gap between knowing and doing? Like why it's so hard to eat your vegetables? Well, no, simple? you see, yeah. yeah, on one hand, yes, <laughs> but also why it's so hard to do things that are just like, th there are plenty of things that, um, why is it so, that's a good example in, in some ways. And in, a, in another sense, I want to say, why is it so hard to, wh why is it so hard to prioritize face-to-face -face human relations over scrolling through social media, even though it takes about two minutes of engaging in face-to-face -face human relationships to remember that it actually feels better right it's not it's not just like yes i ought to eat these vegetables because they're good for me and the reward will be a sort of distant far off thing and it won't be particularly pleasant in the in the moment i mean i i like lots of vegetables but you know the the, <laughs> the metaphor right. refers to vegetables being something kids don't want to eat doesn't it and but actually just what it, it's just it's actually quite hard to do things to, to turn um intentions into actions even when the the, the the reward of that is is very immediate and close to one. So I think I'm that's one of the one of the things that I keep coming back to. That's great. Well, I look forward to to seeing what you come up with. <laughs> Maybe I'll even manage to write it one day. Who knows? <laughs> well, um, Oliver, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your generosity and just your terrific books, which I can't recommend highly enough. They're just they're wonderful reads. So. Thank oh, you. I'm I'm so glad to hear it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs>